The book of Galatians has time and again been used by God to begin a deep work in the hearts of his people. It has been referred to as the Magna Carta of the early church, the Declaration of Freedom. It would seem that each time God's people lose sight of the gospel of freedom and grace, God uses this book of Galatians to bring about a renewed excitement, a renewed passion for what real Christianity is all about, Jesus plus nothing. Let's join our teacher, Ross Gilbert, of Crossways to Life, as we study the book of Galatians to discover what we have been freed from in order to be freed to. How's everyone doing tonight? Very good. Surviving the heat? This will be the test, right? This will find out how, uh, how effective our air conditioning system is today. If we can survive tonight, then, uh, then we'll be good. So, well, fourth week. Fourth out of five. We're almost, uh, we're almost done. We're going to look at uh, the last part of, of Galatians chapter 3, and then we're going to get into Galatians chapter 4. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoyed last week. Last week was exciting for me because we got into the, the theology. We, we're no more looking at the, the history of, of Galatians and Acts and so forth. But Paul then got into the, to the nitty-gritty, right? He, he started to really dig deep. And really that started at the end of chapter 2 when he started talking about justified, being made righteous. And then we saw now in chapter 3, it was all about living by faith. And what was the definition of faith we came up with? Does anyone remember? It was Romans 4.21, right? It was being fully persuaded that what God has promised, He's able to do, right? So we're living by faith, trusting what He's promised He was, could do, He will or has done. That's what faith is. And really, Roman, or Galatians chapter 3 is all about now living by faith. Because remember, what Paul's talking about is not getting saved. Galatians is not a book about salvation. It's a book about sanctification, you could say. It's how do we live the Christian life. And I think as Christians, what we've done is we look at Galatians, the book of Galatians, and we think, well, yeah, that just applies to getting saved. But Paul's whole point of this letter is now, how do we live after that? He's not, not trying to get people saved. They are. He wrote this book to the churches of Galatia. And so in, in Galatians 3 and verse 1, when he opens up, how do he begin? Oh, you foolish Galatians, right? Oh, you senseless, unreflecting, silly, dear idiots, <laughs> right? You dear, dear idiots. Right? What are you thinking? And he's not insulting them. He's saying, use your mind. Think for a second. Really think about what you're going through and what you're trying to do by following the law. And then what he does is he goes through and he begins to list six different arguments in, the book, in chapter 3 about why that's not the way. Right? And so we started listening them here last week. And so we started with the first five verses, really looked at, look at your experience at how you started. How were you saved? Were you saved by works or were you saved by faith? Well, we're, we're saved by, by faith. And, and so if you're saved by faith, how do you expect to perfect what God has done out of your flesh? How can you complete it? If you weren't strong enough, if you weren't smart enough to do it in the first place, what makes you think you can now complete it? And the illustration we used was, was traveling 100 kilometers per hour, right? And the goal was if you travel 100 kilometers per hour, you're saved. And we run and we... we we ride a bike, and we do everything in our power and our own strength, and we, the best we could get maybe is 60 kilometers per hour, well short of the goal, right? And then Jesus shows up in the red sports car and says, jump in. 
I'll drive my power and I'll pull it off. And sure enough, in 3.6 seconds, we're hitting 100 kilometers per hour. We're saved. And we think, wow, thank you, Jesus. I've got it from here. We jump out and we start running beside the car, thinking that now that Jesus has got us up to speed, we can now maintain it. And it's ridiculous. If you couldn't get up to 100 kilometers per hour, what makes you think you can continue on at 100 kilometers per hour? You simply can't. And so it was at the beginning, it was based on faith, and it's going to continue that way. It's always been by faith. That's what we saw in verses 6 to 9, that Abraham was saved by faith, and it was always about faith. Abraham was before the law. There was no law at that point. And we, we went to Hebrews 11, and we walked through all those characters, right? We looked at Abel, and we looked at uh, Noah, and we looked at Abraham and Isaac and David, and my favorite, which is Rahab the harlot, right? And all these people were saved without the law, right? They're all saved by faith. Some had the law, others didn't. But the same constant, everyone was saved by faith, right? So it's always been about faith. It was never about the law. And then we looked at the impossibility of trying to live by the law. Right? It just doesn't make sense. It's not possible. Those 613 commands that are, that are listed in the Bible, you need to follow them, not just some of the time, but all the time, perfectly. And if you fail any one of the 613 commands at any point in time, you've blown it. Right? So we did a quick test. And, and how many people here passed that test of completing it all? Yeah. No one. Right? We've all failed. In fact, you know, we've probably failed already this year, never mind in our lifetime, right? And so it's impossible. It's impossible. So Paul said, clearly, evidently, without any doubt, it's impossible to live that way. And if you did, you'd be under a curse. And so we saw that led to the next reason why, because we've been redeemed from the curse by the work of the cross, by Christ's death on that cross. He took upon himself his sins, but not only that, he took upon you and I, right? He became sin who knew no sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness, the acceptance, the justified of God, right? <clears throat> and so we've been redeemed by the, from the curse, and then that led to the fifth point, which I really enjoyed, I thought was so impressive, that really the new covenant that we talk about is really old. It predates Moses, right? The new covenant is really the Abrahamic covenant. And, and what we saw there was that the Abrahamic covenant was really a covenant between who? God and Jesus, right? It was a covenant between God and Jesus, Jesus being the seed of Abraham. Not seeds, but to the seed of Abraham that the promise was giving. That word promise really referring to covenant. And so the idea was that Jesus and God made a covenant together that they would save us, that they would rescue us. And Abraham, where was he when this covenant was being made? Sleeping. <laughs> Just like guys, right? I mean, he was napping, right? God put him to sleep, and here comes God and Jesus. They walked the covenant. I swear by myself, we will do this, right? Between he had nothing to do with Abraham. Nothing to do with it. It wasn't Abraham now needs to do this, this, and this. It was simply what God had done all by himself. Incredible. This wonderful covenant. And so it predates the Mosaic covenant. And so the Mosaic covenant that comes in 430 years later, does it change or nullify the Abrahamic covenant? In no way. In no way. So why did God add the Mosaic covenant? 
Well, Paul then, starting in verse uh, 19 to 25, I think it is, he then begins to explain the reason why. And basically, it was so we'd all shut up. That's what he says, right? We would all be shut up under sin so that there would be no doubt that we're there, that we need to be saved. Because you see, what we could do is say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, I compare myself to Hitler, I'm doing okay, <laughs> right? Or Paul Bernardo, it just, just, it's all relative. And, and so we think we might be okay, so God introduces the law to define what sin is so that we know what it is, so that there's no doubt about sin. And so we now realize what sin is, right? It exposes the sin. It lets us know what sin is. Much like a mirror. When you look at a mirror, it exposes the dirt on your face. That's what the law is to do, is to expose the sin. Now, when you look in a mirror and you see the dirt on your face, do you grab the mirror and start scrubbing it on your face, hoping to get rid of the dirt? No. In the same way, the law won't remove the dirt. In fact, what the law will do is actually make the dirt increase. It will cause sin to increase. Romans 5.20 says that. The law was added so that the law, so that increases, the trespasses would increase. It was never meant to reduce sin. It was to amplify it. It was essentially became the magnifying glass. So you saw every single dirt and pore, and, oh, that's ugly, right? I need to be cleaned. But you don't scrub with the mirror. You go and get washed. You go get cleaned. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And so then we started seeing towards the end that the law has become our tutor. Now, tutor isn't a good translation, right? Another translation uses child guide, or some use teacher. Uh, teacher's really bad. Teacher's definitely not what it is. Child guide's better. The Greek word we saw is paidagogos, right? And the paidagogos was essentially the governess, the person who would lead you to school so you would get taught at school, but the governess, the paidagogos, they would never teach you. They would just be there to make sure you're doing your homework. They would whip you. They would beat you. They, they were tough on you. That was their job. They were, they were hired by the, by the father to care for the, the young child, the young son. That was the job of the paedagogos. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under that paedagogos, right? Because the law was temporary. It was only meant to be, we were only meant to be under it temporarily. Now, it's not that the law disappears. But you and I were only meant to be under it for a short time, right? And that was until salvation came. The moment salvation comes, we have faith. We've got Jesus. You don't need the law. You don't need the law system. Now, we've got something far better. We've got Jesus. Amen? So that's, that's a quick review of, of where we left it. And we're seeing Paul saying, live by faith. Walk by faith. If you're saved by faith, continue on in faith. Don't go back to the law. We're free from that way of living. Amen? Amen. So what I want to do is, is continue on with that. Um, but before we do, why don't we pray? And we'll turn to God to let Him be our teacher tonight. Heavenly Father, what an awesome salvation You've given to us. And we glory in it because you did it. You made it completely possible. You're the one that paid for it. You promised it to us. 
In fact, you even made a covenant for us. A covenant you made with yourself. And I marvel at that, Father. And we thank you for it. And I pray as we continue on in this wonderful book that you've given to us, that we would see your heart. That it would produce a desire in us to, to know you and to experience life in you as you intend. And so I confess my dependence upon you, Father, and ask you to be the teacher. For these people don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you. And so speak through me, Father. Do whatever you choose to glorify and manifest your Son through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, before we, before we move on, I want to take a, a moment here, a little pause, and kind of step out of the, of the book of Galatians because there's an important point here that I want to make. And, and that is around three misconceptions about the law. And, and the first one I want to look at is this word that's called antinomianism. Can you all say that? Well done. Yeah, excellent. Well done, right? I mean, I didn't even have to the bouncing ball, so that's good. So antinomianism. Anti meaning against. Noma meaning law. And ism because, you know, it's something. Right? So, antinomianism, right? Antinoma. It's against the law. And, and there's a belief out there, and, and this is something that is growing. And, and I, I know of major churches in our country that are teaching this, essentially. This idea that there's something wrong with the law. And so now that the, the law is bad, and, and when you start to see grace, it's easy, I think, to, to fall into this trap. This is a, a big danger. And, and many people, when they hear grace, they think, oh, you must be against the law. And that's not it at all. We're not against the law. But some would say that, you know, the law was really twisted by man. That man came and he distorted it and he made it into this, this works religion. And that was never the intent of the law. And so, therefore, God had to come and he had to abolish the law. And that's what he did with the work of the cross. He redeemed us from the law because the law was twisted by man. And so the law is bad. And God got rid of the law. And now we just did, we've got Jesus. And therefore the law is gone. Don't worry about the law. You've got Jesus. That's not true. That's not true. Make no mistake. There's nothing wrong with the law. Absolutely nothing wrong with the law. In, in Romans 7, uh, verse 12 or 13... Paul says the law is holy, righteous, perfect, and good. That was God created. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, righteous, perfect, and good. It's the character of God, right? He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He doesn't covet. He doesn't commit adultery. That's not who he is. It's not a description of his character. And the law defines for us his character. It tells us who he is. But there's nothing wrong with the law. And so this notion that, that we need to get rid of the law, no. We need to use the law. In fact, I think we don't use it enough. But we just need to use it properly. We need to use it for what it's meant for, right? And the danger is if you get rid of the law, you're getting rid of our paedagogos. You're getting rid of something that God added for a specific reason, which is to lead us to Christ for righteousness, but if you abolish the law and you get rid of the law, then there's no longer need, right? Because there's nothing to expose sin. So what do I need to be saved from? There's no law, no big deal. 
what do I need to be saved from? So the law is important. Turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll, we'll start in verse 5. And uh, we'll come back to this verse probably later on tonight. But verse 5 says, The goal of our instruction, the point of all this teaching that we come for, is that we would what? Love. That we would love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But, verse 6, For some men, though, straying from these things, straying away from this idea of love from a, a good heart, uh, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. They strayed from these things and they turned aside the fruitless discussion, right? From uh, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So then there's people that want to, you know, put us under the law and say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And they make these confident assertions, but really they're clueless. They have no idea what they're talking about because they don't understand what the law is for. But we know the law is good, right? We're not against the law. It's not antinomianism. The law is good. The law is wonderful if one uses it lawfully, if you use it properly. If you don't use it properly, you're going to be in trouble. Verse 9, realizing the fact is not made for a righteous person. Who's a righteous person? The saints, those in Christ, right? Those who are saved, right? I mean, that's the whole point that he's been making in Galatians 3 that we've been looking at, right? Realizing the fact the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or, mo or mothers or murderers, for immoral men, and the list goes on and on and on, right? So the law is made for the unbeliever. That's the point. Turn to Romans, chapter 3. Romans 3, and uh, in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We, are al we have already been charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As is written, there are none that are righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've all become useless. Literally rotten fruit. Isn't that exciting, right? Unbelievers are rotten fruit. There is none who does good. There's not even one. And it goes on. Verse 19 then it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. If you're against the law, no one's accountable to God anymore. You don't need to be saved. You become your own God. So the grace message isn't against the law. It's for the law, assuming you use it properly. Right? Realizing the law is not for the Christian. It's for the non-Christian. It's to expose their sin. It's to expose the need for salvation, that they would be accountable to God. Does that make sense? Right? Now, the other one, which is very well known, the legalism, where we're trying to earn salvation through the law, right? And that's what Judaism is today. That's what uh, Islam is today. That's what all religion is today, where you're earning salvation through what you do or don't do, right? And 
as, as, you know, as a result of the Reformation with Martin Luther, it's very clear that that's not Christianity, right? So we're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace through faith. But then there's this other term, Galatianism, which really was not really a, you know, a technical term. It was kind of invented by a guy named R.D. DeHaan. But his, what he was saying really is the error that the Church of Galatia has fallen for is this one where they're trying to keep or, or and protect or perfect the salvation they have through the law. So the idea being is now that I'm saved, I can either maintain my salvation or I can perfect my salvation by how hard I work. So I'm not earning my salvation by the law, but now that I'm saved by grace through faith, I return to the law and start living this way. And this era of Galatianism, this is the era that the church is plagued with. This is the one that, that you know, a lot of people uh, in, in our churches today, this is where they're struggling with because they keep going back to the law. And, and the law really is a blanket term, and, and maybe a better term would be this law system to more accurately describe uh, how we're living. Yes? Could you be more specific about the law? Like, what law are you... We're going to get to that. We're going to explain what, the, what I mean by that in, in just one second. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great question. Okay, let's, let's get back now to, to, uh, to Galatians chapter 3. And so in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, no longer under that paedagogos, that child guide. We're free from the law. And that now brings us to, starting in verse 26, Paul's going to give his sixth argument, and that is that we're sons of God. And that's, this argument here is actually going to carry on into the fourth chapter, right? So you're no longer under a tutor, for you are all now sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So we're all children of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, the word baptized, is this referring to our water baptism? No. No. The, wa- the, the word baptism... Is, is there's really no English word. I mean, they made it up. The, the Greek word is baptizo. And when they were translating the, English, the, the Bible into English, they didn't translate the word baptizo. They just made up a word. I'm not sure why they did that. But, I mean, hey, George Bush can do it. So can they, I guess. So they, they made up this word baptize. And so all of us who have been baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. Now, when I see this word, this phrase baptized into Christ... I can't help but think about Romans chapter 6, verse 3, where, where Paul says there, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into, his, into Christ have also been baptized into his death, right? And I think that's what he's getting at here, this idea. For all of you, when you're placed into Christ, you're placed into his death, into his burial, into his resurrection. You're now clothed with Christ. You are now raised up with him in the likeness of him. That's what Romans 6 verses, well, really, Romans 6, <laughs> uh, specifically verses 3 to, 3 to 6 are saying. And now you close yourself with Christ. You're in Him. You're in the likeness of Him. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. Ephesians 
And Ephesians 4.24 talks about having put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holy, and holiness of the truth. So this idea, you've been clothed with Christ. You're created in the likeness now of Christ. It doesn't make you God. That's not what it is. But you are now as acceptable. You are now as righteous. You are now as loved. You are in Christ. Verse 28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, for there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, as one person called, a pastoral pot shot. I kind of like that term, a pastoral pot shot, where someone takes a pot shot at someone from the pulpit. This is what Paul was doing here. Because, you see, in, this, in his day, there was a prayer that many Jewish men would pray. And every morning they'd get up and they'd say, Lord God Almighty... I thank you that you have not made me into a Gentile. Because Gentiles are dogs. And so I thank you, God, you have not made me into a Gentile. I thank you, God, you have not made me into a slave. And I thank you, God, you have not made me into a woman. That's what they would pray. And so look what Paul says. Listen, you guys. <laughs> there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. He, I mean, this is the first equal rights movement right here. Right? He said all are equal. Now, notice this though. Equal does not mean same. This is a mistake I think we've made in our, in our day and age. We mean equal must mean the same. It's not. Men and women, completely equal. But are they the same? No, they're not the same. But... Same doesn't mean not equal. It means we're all equal in Christ now. No one's better than another. We can't say, hey, you know, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm greater than you. We can't say that. And you can't say that about me. Right? We're all now one and equal in Christ. The ultimate in equality. The ultimate in the leveling out of the field. Right? And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to promise. Remember, that's referring to the covenant, right? So we're heirs according to the covenant promise that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, right? And this word heirs, that word is incredible because it, the idea of it, especially in Romans 8, verse uh, 16 and 17, it talks about how we're joint heirs with Christ. And and I'm glad that he defined the kind of heir we are. You see, there's two different versions of it. In, in my family, I'm one of four kids. And, and one day, my, kid, my, my parents will pass on, and, and they'll give us an inheritance. And, and typically, how it would work is my oldest brother would get about 25%. My next brother would get 25%. I would get 40, and my sister would get 10. <laughs> I'm hoping. Come on. I can hope. <laughs> I don't think so, right? We're all going to get equal shares, meaning we'd all get 25%, right? That's one version of being an heir. But that's not the kind of heir we are in this family. You see, the heir that, that is stipulated in Romans 8 refers to one where my oldest brother, he'd get 100%. My next brother would get 100%. I would get 100%. And even my sister would get 100%. We all get it all. And what God has made us is he has made us these joint heirs with Christ. So everything that's bestowed upon Christ, who gets to share in that? 
That absolutely blows my mind. I'm amazed at that. That, that God would choose to share that with us. Because we don't deserve it. We really have no idea what he's given to us. And it's ours simply because he's chosen to give it to us. And we receive it by faith, not by working. We're heirs according to promise by faith. So verse four, or chapter 4 now. So new chapter, new thought, right? Is he going to now talk about something else? No. It's just a continuation from where he was going on before. Now I say as long as the heir, right? It's just a continuation. Now as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by the father. Now what Paul's going to talk about here is a custom that was found in Roman culture that really isn't found in our culture. It's, it's not really found in the North American or even British cultures. We don't have anything like this to compare in our day, but in Roman days, they did. Um, <clears throat> Jewish culture has something similar. When a boy becomes a man, what do they call that event? Bar mitzvah. And how old is this boy when he you know, has his bar mitzvah ceremony, when he becomes a man? He's 13, 12 or 13 years old, right? And as soon as he hits that age, he becomes a man. Well, that's not how it worked in Roman culture. In Roman culture, what they would do is you would have this child, and he was kept under the guardians and managers, people appointed by the father, by the master. He would appoint these paedagogos, these governesses, and they would be in charge of the child. They would have authority over the child. Now, the child is the son. The child has heirs of everything. But he has really no different from a slave. He's treated like a slave. He lives like a slave in many ways. He's put to work like a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. And he's under the, the, the care of the guardians, and he remains that way until the date set by the father. See, it wasn't you hit 13... Pop, you're a man, suddenly you're out from under these, guys, these managers. As long as the father said, you're there, you're there. The father had dominion. The father had control. He was the one who got to pick and choose when the son graduated, when he, had, uh, when he was able to, to grow up. And what they would do when, the, when this day came is the son would now become the heir. And what the father was saying this day is, this man, this son is now a man. This boy is now my heir. Everything I have, now he has. He belongs to him. He affirmed him into manhood. And what they would do is they would put on what was called the toga virilis. Right? Toga meaning cloak or, or robe. And virilis meaning virility. Right, guys? Virility. Manhood. Ugh. Right? Do your Tim, Ta or Tim uh, Toolman grunt sort of thing. Right? So at this moment, they would put on this toga virilis. And this idea of being now clothed in manhood. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he's ready to think about um, you're all baptized with Christ and have clothed yourself. That's that toga, right? You put on this toga, clothe yourself with Christ, and this is, the, I think, the picture that he's getting at here. Where now they become a man. And now they're, they're seen as a, 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 this heir, this son. And so now he's going to apply it, right? This idea that he is under guardians of management to the day set by the Father. I think that refers to the day you and I were saved. 
right? The day that, that God chose to call us. The day that God chose to invite us in to his family. So also, also we, while we were children, were held in bondage on the elemental things of the world. Now, the elemental things of the world, this is the law system. This is, this is what I'm going to get at when I explain what I mean by the law. This law system, this, this way of living. Now, how many people here are Gentiles? Right? I think everyone here is a Gentile, right? There's no Jews here, right? So the law was never actually given to us, right? No one actually could say, get up and say, as a Jewish person, the law was, was given to me. We, as Gentiles, we can't say that because the law wasn't given to us. However, in a way, we are still under that law. See, turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and, uh, and starting in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, right? No Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no free, no slave. There's no partiality with God, for all have sinned. Without the law will also perish with the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So you can't say, well, you know, I'm not Jew. I didn't have the law, so I'm off the hook. Doesn't matter. If you are antinomian and you are against the law, Say, well, God, that, I'm not accountable to you because I don't believe in the law. Too bad for you. <laughs> You'll discover God still believes in the law and you're still accountable to it, right? Whether you have the law or not. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, accusing, or else defending them. You see, what happened when Adam ate from that tree of knowledge, good and evil, it says her, his eyes were opened. Right? In that day, your eyes will be opened. You will know good from evil. You will know right from wrong. And when he ate from that tree, guess what happened? His eyes were opened. He now knew what was right and what was wrong. His conscience was seared now. I think, you know, if maybe we saw that tree of knowledge of, good, knowledge of good and evil, you probably would have seen the law. Right? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie. I don't know if it's written on the leaves or maybe on the fruit, kind of like, you know, sweethearts and stuff, but, but I think that's essentially what was on the tree. I mean, it was, that's the law. And when he ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, the law was seared on his heart. Whether he had the law written out or not. And so what ends up happening? Man now knows what's right or wrong. Think about Cain, right? Genesis chapter 4. This is right after the fall. They've exited the garden. And notice, man doesn't go down now a gentle slope into misery, right? Genesis chapter 4. The very first sin recorded after the fall is what? Murder. Right? They jumped off the cliff in the garden, right? And so here it is, Cain murders Abel because he's jealous. He's jealous over what God accepted his sacrifice, and God didn't accept Cain's. And so Cain's upset, he murders his brother Abel, and then all of a sudden God shows up and says, Cain, where's your brother? What does Cain do? Uh, I haven't seen him. I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know. Now, does he know? Yeah. Sure. Why is he lying? Because he knows it's wrong. So even then, he knew it was wrong to murder. 
how the law was seared on his heart, right? And so what ends up happening though, is this law system. Whatever The law system basically is whatever I think I need to do in order to please God. Whatever I need to do to maybe even please others. Whatever I need to do to find acceptance from God, from myself, from other people. That's the law system. And see, as Gentiles, we grew up with maybe a very different system than the Jews did, but nonetheless having a law system, right? And maybe even in your own subgroup, in your own culture, because in, in each family, there's a whole set of rules, right? What you need to do within that family. And a lot of that is even often based on your nationality, Right? Be it a Mennonite or, or being a Dutch or, or being Canadian or being German. A lot of that is passed down. This thinking, what is acceptable in my family? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to measure up? And that begins to define our law system. And maybe even in our church. What do I need to be acceptable in my denomination? What do I need to be acceptable in my local church? Do I have to give so much? Do I have to read from a certain Bible? Do I have to go to church uh, so many times a week? Do I have to wear certain clothes? This here, these are the elemental things of the world. This is the law system. Right? And so while we are children, we are held under bondage. The word bondage means enslaved to. You were slaves to it. And we were in bondage, we were slaves to this law system. But... When the fullness of time came, at the right time. I mean, it's interesting to me that God waited some 4,000 years before sending His Son. He could have sent Jesus Genesis 4, but it wasn't time yet. We weren't ready for it. We didn't know what it meant to be saved. So in the fullness of time, 4,000 years later, when the Greek Roman Empire is set up, what does God do? He sends His Son in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, but born under the law. Not born of a man. Right? Because if He was born of a man, He would have been under Adam's curse. He would have been in Adam. But He was born under a woman. Right? Born of a woman, under the law. So along comes Jesus, under the law. So when you're reading the Gospels, most of the Gospels is Old Covenant. Right? The new covenant came into effect at the cross. Everything before the cross, that's old covenant. That's Jesus living under the law. Why? Why was that so important? Because he needed to fulfill the law. Right? Matthew 5, 17. I haven't come to abolish the law. Jesus is not antinomianism. Jesus is all for the law. He gave us the law. Right? But instead, I have come to fulfill the law. What was the law demanding of us? Perfection. And how many people did that one well? So now that you failed, what does the law demand of you now? Death. Not your kidney, not your arm, not 10 bucks, not 14 Holy Marys, right? But your life, your death. And so Jesus came, fulfilling the law perfectly to be that sacrifice, right? born under the law, so he might redeem us, might buy us back, these who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, I want to focus on this word adoption for a moment, because 
when we think of adoption in our society, we think of a, a child who is born outside of our family, and we then invite them into the family, right? We think of a child who, you know, was, was given up by their birth parents, and so now another family comes along and says, we want you. We choose you. Will you come and join our family? But that's not what this is talking about. Just a second. That's not what this word adoption is referring to. You see, this word adoption is really referring to this idea here of a son becoming a man. It's this toga virilis. Adoption here is not coming into the family. You're already there, but you're being recognized now as a man. You're being recognized now as being mature. Right? It's, it's an affirmation. So this toga virilis ceremony was really when, when you were adopted into the family. You're no longer seen as a slave. You're now seen as a son. Right? They don't enter the family. They've already been there, but now they become into it, into being a man. Just a second, right? So this is important, this adoptions as sons, because it speaks to, I think, this issue of maturity. You see, when you're saved... You don't show up as a little baby. When you're saved, you show up fully mature. Now, make this clear. You don't know everything, right? Just like if you were made mature at an 18-year-old, you don't know everything. Just 18-year-olds think they do, but they don't, right? But you don't know everything, and you're going to grow, but you don't need anything else. You see, the great danger that we could take from this is that, oh, we're adopted, now we're saved, we're now children of God, but we're little babies. And little babies, they need stuff. They need to be taught what's right or wrong, and we'll add the law for that. And that's not Paul's point. Paul's point all up to this so far in, in Galatians 3 and 4 is you don't need the law. You don't need the law to, to teach you. You've got Jesus. You've got everything. Turn in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, we'll start in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, how? By grace through faith. So walk in Him. How? By grace through faith. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that no one puts you back under the law. See to it that no one gets you to, to follow this elemental things, this law system. Verse 9, For in him all the fullness of, of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God. And you have everything if you have Jesus. Because in verse 10 it says, And in him you have been made complete. You've got it all. You're mature. Now, you don't always act mature. And you're going to learn to become more and more mature. But you are complete. You have everything. And as he is the head over all and rule, rule of authority. So this idea we're now complete in Christ. You now, the moment you're saved, you're not a little child. You're now a mature son of God. You're a mature child of God. You're complete. You don't always live that way, but you have it. You have a question? So that scripture, when you might receive 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly, right? So he might redeem those under law that he might receive the adoption, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Yes. Well, yes and no. Right, yeah. You're, the baby Christian might be immature in their faith and they might need to grow in their faith and so forth, but they're not maturing in terms of, of becoming more and, and, and getting more. They have it all. They have it all because they've got Christ, right? Ephesians 1.3 says this, You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a good news, bad news verse. Right? I'll give you the bad news so that we can end on the good news. The bad news is this. There are no more spiritual blessings coming your way. If you are praying, God, give me more spiritual blessings, then I got bad news for you. There's none on the way. Because you have been, past tense, given every, meaning all, right, spiritual blessing. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You don't need any more. You don't need any more because you've been given who? Jesus. And in Jesus dwells the deity in bodily form. And you are now complete in him. So there's no more to come because you've got it all. Right? That's what makes us mature. What makes us immature is not realizing that we have it all. Right? But there's no more to come. You don't need the law now to grow up under as a baby Christian. Because now you're seen as a full son. Again, I can't look down on baby Christians now or new Christians saying, well, you know, I've been a Christian for much longer than you. No. I mean, I know a lot of Christians who have been Christians for 40 years. And really, they've just been a Christian for one year 40 times over. Right? They haven't grown. They haven't, they haven't developed. And they're still acting like little babies. Even though the moment they're saved... They were a full adult. They just haven't been living like a full adult. Yes? That's talking about the teachings, the elemental teachings. That's right. Yeah, but that's, that doesn't make us, though, this idea that we're not mature Christians the moment we're saved. It, it's, it's, no, it's it, it, not the elemental things of the world. And there it's the elemental teachings of ABCs of Christianity. Like, who God is, getting your sins forgiven, and so forth. And the interesting thing, because that's at the end of Hebrews 5, he says we've got to get away from the milk so we can get on to the roast beef, the, 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 the tough stuff of Christianity. And guess what that is? The teaching on righteousness. What Paul's talking about right here, right? And verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now notice this. First here in verse for God sent forth his son, right? Sent his son into the world, and then he sent forth his spirit, right? Now notice this. He sent his spirit. You don't need to ask for his spirit. You don't need to pray a certain prayer for his spirit. You don't need to, to dance for his spirit. You don't need a chant for his spirit. God sent forth his spirit. In Romans 8, verse 13 says... If you have Christ, you have His Spirit. There is no half-filling and then needing more. You've got it all. You are complete in Christ. And He sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, 
Father. Now, the word crying literally means screaming, yelling. I mean, that's, it's not quiet. It's yelling it. Abba, Father! I mean, that's the passion. That's the excitement here. And I love that he used both terms. Because it's, it's not Abba, Abba, or not Father, Father. It's Abba, Father. Now, we know what Father means, right? It's the, the mature word. It's what, you know, Father, right? And we, we often use that in our prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with the term Father, right? But he also includes this term, Abba. You know what Abba means? No, not really. It doesn't mean Daddy. doesn't mean Father. Literally, Abba means Dada. This, this is baby talk. This is what one-year-olds or two-year-olds, when they see their daddy, that's what they would say. If, if, if you had a Jewish child or saw a Jewish child and it was one or two and they saw their daddy, they would go, Abba, 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 Abba. What, what our kids do, they go, Dada, 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 Dada. Papa, 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 Papa. It's gibberish. And that's what Paul uses here. And he wasn't the first. Who was the first person to use that term? Jesus, right? Abba, Father. And people thought that's too far. That's heresy to declare that kind of an intimate relationship. But I think Paul uses both terms, Abba, Father, because Abba speaks to the intimacy that we have with God, and Father speaks to the maturity that we have now that we're adopted as sons. This Abba Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're no longer under the Pythagoras. You're no longer under the law. However, at that time when you did not know God, speaking when you were unsaved, you were slave to those which were by nature are no gods. You were slave to the elemental principles of this world. You were slaves and in bondage to this law system. What do I need to do to become acceptable to myself, to others, or even God? What do I need to pull off and accomplish? But now, not but later, but now. You have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. I think it's, it's incredible here that Paul, he wants to go deeper. It's not just you know God, but no, God knows you. You're in his family. That's a better way of putting it. It's not God's in your family. You're, you're in his. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? That law system is weak and worthless. Now, does that mean there's something wrong with the law? Nothing's wrong with the law. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law was fine. Because the law is essentially saying love. I mean, that's basically it, right? The Pharisees, they ask Jesus, what's the, what's the command? What's the greatest commandment? Trying to trap him. If, he's, you know, if he says it's murder, then he's soft on adultery. If he says it's adultery, then he's soft on coveting. If he says it's coveting, then he's soft on lying. We've got him trapped. So what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your God with everything you got. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Within these two commands, all the law, all the prophets, everything that's been written is summed up. 
right? So if you memorize that verse, apparently you memorize the Bible, right? It's a read or digest version, but there it is, right? Summed up. Love God all you got and love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? That's what the law is getting us to do. But he couldn't pull it off. Was there something wrong with the law? No. Something wrong with us. Weak as it was through the flesh. So God did. He accomplished it. And he's going to continue to accomplish it through us as we'll start seeing in the next chapter. But as weak and worthless elements, don't return back to this law system to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. And here's the key I want you to see. To which you desire. You know what that tells me? People that are under the law system, why are they there? Because they want to. Because they desire to. They choose to be. A lot of people ask me the question, what do I do when someone else puts me under law? Nobody puts you under law. You choose to put yourself under the law. You see, if I were to say to you, Johnny, I will not accept you unless you do these five things. I've now placed Johnny under law. He's got five things to earn my acceptance. Now, does Johnny have to do those things? No. But if Johnny chooses to now, if Johnny thinks, okay, I need to strive, I need to struggle, because, you know, that Ross guy, he's, he's a mean kind of guy, and, and so I'm going to do these five things so I can get his acceptance, he's put himself under law. He didn't have to. He's free. But he chose to. He chose to put himself, he desired to put himself under law. Because he's trying to earn my acceptance. And so nobody puts you under law. It's what you desire to. It's when you hunger for that love and acceptance from someone else other than Jesus himself. You choose to put yourself under law. Nobody puts you there. Right? And end up, you're enslaved all over again. Why go back to that weak and worthless things? Now, here's the thing. If Johnny says, no, I'm free. I love Ross, but I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. He's free. I might get all upset. I might throw a big fit. That's my problem, not his. He's free. He's at peace. Right? And so this Abba Father, this relationship, this, this beautiful child-father relationship where this father protects the child, cares for the child, loves the child. That's what we are. So this is the intimacy, but it doesn't describe your maturity. And I like what one pastor said. Frank Friedman put it this way. He says, the goal really should be that we become more childlike with God. And the more childlike with God you are, the more adult you can be with other people. The more adult you are with God, the more childlike you are with other people. Though. Right? The moment we think, God, I've got it covered. I'm independent. I can do it myself. How do we treat other people? We throw fits. We throw big temper tantrums. 
the more childlike you are with God, the more dependent upon God you are, the more you're trusting Him and relying upon Him, the more adult you can be with other people. You're free to love people. You can accept other people. You won't beat other people up. You won't be that menace. And you won't be that mess. But you observe days and months and seasons and years. For I fear that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Turn quickly to, to Colossians again. We'll go back to chapter 2. So we left off in verse 10. You were made complete in Him, where the full deity reigns in bodily form. And verse 11, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Remember, with Abraham, circumcision was the sign. It was the picture. Because God really wanted to circumcise our hearts. And if you're in Christ, ladies, you've been circumcised. Right? But it's not a physical circumcision. It's the spiritual circumcision of our heart. How? Verse 12, having been buried with Him through the cross, where I died with Christ, and I was buried with Him in baptism, in which you are also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. That's the baptism into Christ. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Jump to verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to what food or drink or in respect to a festival or to a new moon or a Sabbath day. You see, these people were starting to observe months and seasons. Right? They, I think they might have been starting to follow the, the Jewish feasts. Now, in our day, we don't often do the Jewish feasts, but we often observe other kinds of feasts. Maybe people observe Lent. Or, you know, we have to observe the Advent season and so forth. There's nothing wrong with those things, per se, but there are many that we need to do it. And what they've done is they've begun to observe that. And, and Paul here in Colossians saying the exact same thing. So don't let anyone judge you. Things which are a mere shadow of what has come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you up of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and holding fast to the head whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. So trust in Christ. Depend upon him. Verse 20. If you have died with Christ, not really if, it should be since you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of this world, to the law system. Why, as if you're living in the world, do you submit yourself to degrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Right? I mean, there are people who say, as a Christian, you cannot smoke. You can smoke. It's stupid to smoke, but you can smoke. Right? You're free to do that. Go ahead and kill yourself. You have that freedom, right? You can drink. Make no mistake, it's not a sin to drink. Jesus turned water into wine. It was not grape juice. It was not, not non-alcoholic wine, right? Because these people drank it and they liked it, right? They wouldn't have liked it if it was just grape juice. 
They like the wine. Now, it, drunkenness is wrong, but it's okay to drink. You have that freedom now. You can eat meat. But if you want to be a vegetarian, you have that freedom too. You're free. But don't submit yourself to these simple rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. You're free. You are completely free. Um, verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. The appearance of godliness. On the outside, oh, it looks so good. The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. Man's rules, man's laws, and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The law doesn't work. I mean, we make the laws thinking, well, if we don't drink, then no one will get drunk. Because, you know, when prohibition was around, nobody touched alcohol. Right? Yeah. It doesn't work. It may look like, oh, this is going to be the key. It has no power over fleshly indulgence. It's simply going to happen. But I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I mean, you hear his heart here. Has it been for naught? And, and i got to share it personally. I've seen this. I can't begin to count the number of people that have come through our doors, for, both for myself and with Don and, and the counseling, and they've sat before us, and we go and walk with them as they go on their journey and they receive this new life in Christ. And then six months later, we hear that they're right back to where they were before. That they had freedom for a little bit, and then they returned to the elemental principles of this world. I can't begin to not count the number of people and it breaks my heart because they tasted freedom. They lived free. They experienced his power in his life and then they chose. They desired to go back and be enslaved to the elemental things of this world and it breaks my heart. Do you think that it might be because we live in a society and even in the church that's so under law that it's so hard to be I know, I'm in that. I know, I know, but I'm... But we desire. Yeah. You're free. You're free to choose. Yeah. I'm just curious. And, and, and maybe there's a tidal wave that's saying, go this way. And there's God saying, mm -mm, go the other way. But why would you desire that after you've tasted such more? Because the thing with the law on this outside looks good. Wow, you know what? If I don't do this, I'll be okay. I'll be accepted. Especially if I got the world screaming at me, do this, otherwise you're not okay. So who am I going to choose? Am I going to choose God's acceptance or these people's but acceptance? I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it's terrible, but I think this is all, this is very rare. This, this, this message, unfortunately, is not prevalent. And so when people go back into their community or wherever they're, they are, yeah. they're alone. And if you don't have that support, yeah. we need to have support. That's and, right. And if you don't have it. That's that's the problem with the church. That's the church. The church should be this. The church should be this, right? I mean, because we're all recovering legalists, right? I mean, we should run the church like an AA meeting, right? Hi, my name's Ross. I'm a, I'm a legalist. Uh, I've been free for five years, and um, you know, I haven't touched the law. And uh, I mean, that's how we should run the church, right? But we don't. We don't do that, right? We don't do that, right? I'll come back to that, right? So. 
But he goes, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. Become free, just like I'm free, right? <laughs> we need support groups, right? For you've done me no wrong, right? And he shares his heart. And, and we're going to take a break here, and I'm not short on time, but, um, but we're going to see when we come back, we're going to see Paul's heart. And, and I think Paul's gotten a bad rap. No, in fact, I know Paul's gotten a bad rap. And, and we're going to see coming up what his heart's really like. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www dot crosswaystolife dot org